This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, and with me today, I have Elisaveta Friesem, author of the book Media Is Us. Elisaveta, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> um, so to start, can you um, share a little bit uh, with our listeners about your background, professional background, educational background? Uh, sure. So um, I am actually an immigrant from Russia. I have lived here about 10 years now. Um, and I have two doctorate degrees. One is from Russia and one is from the United States, from Philadelphia. Uh, my second one is in media and communication. And my first one uh, was very broad, social sciences, humanities. So uh, I am, um, I would say, a generalist uh, with a focus on human communication. But I also like to ask uh, questions about human nature and uh, all this good stuff that I'm sure we'll um, uh, focus on now in our discussion. Yeah, so you wrote this book, Media's Us, Understanding Communication and Moving Beyond Blame. Um, and to kind of start our discussion, can you um, talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this book with the, the very personal way that you approach the book as well? Mm. Um, so, so as I said, my second book, uh, degree uh, is in media and communication. So I have read lots of articles and books about media. And I realized at some point that a couple of things. First thing I realized that I don't see a lot of definitions of media. People just started talking about media texts, media representations, uh, analyzing them. And there seemed to be like a underlying assumption that everybody knows what media is and and when i started teaching about media and i was asking my students what it is i i i saw that uh actually this is an illusion that we have this uh shared understanding because they would they would start giving me those huge lists right it's like books and internet and 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 uh, names of films or video games and i would keep asking them so what is it so what is it and they're like all this stuff <laughs> and so I felt that something was missing so that's one one thing and the other thing was that I was not satisfied with the um I I, I mean I I really um a value all the 
great ideas that I got from all the books and uh, articles about media representations and uh, problems with, with media. But I felt that the angle, I wasn't satisfied with the angle that seemed like a, lo- a lot of blame and fear. And so I sort of com- com- I was combining and recombining it in my head, trying to understand what is my sort of intuition telling me. And then I felt that this the piece was missing, the recognition that yes, there's technology and it's important to talk about technology, uh, but the recognition that it's people who are uh, doing media, right? And it's not just some other people, but it's each one of us. Uh, and so that's how I started writing this book, essentially. Yeah, and that's, I really appreciate your approach, you know, as a media studies academic, I um, I love that the concept of vulnerability, when you kind of contextualize this where you're because you're really speaking it from a very personal perspective, um, you know, as a scholar, but also just as a as a human engaging in communication in a very media-saturated environment. Um, so I definitely appreciate appreciate and, and can kind of identify with the vulnerability aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about um, what that process was like for you to write this book that is not really what we would think of as an academic, mm. quote, book on yeah. media studies? That's a great question. Well, uh, it took me about five years to write this book. And I uh, actually rewrote it a few times in the process. And in the beginning, it was uh, the the voice that I used was very much my academic voice, the the, the one that I uh, used in my articles, in my dissertation. But I felt that I was not satisfied with that. I wanted to it to be accessible to a broader audience. And that is how I started using a more personal voice and incorporating more examples that I thought would be uh, uh, relatable and compelling. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's in a, in a nutshell uh, what my process was. Yeah, I think, and I, again, I super appreciate that. And, and you start, your introduction is is actually, it spoke to me immediately because I had a student do a a project on this dove body wash. Mm, ah, really? Wow. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and this is, and this is great. Can, so can you talk about that journey? Like, cause it seems like this was like a, like a, you know, a aha moment for you yeah. like from a personal and an academic standpoint as to like, Oh wow, maybe this is really how I should approach this. Cause I, I think that we do and we should as academics have those very, human moments to be like, wow, I, I, um, I really did not handle that as I should have, but we're all human and we make those mistakes. Um, so I'd love to hear you kind of contextualize that a little bit more. Yes. Do you want me just to say a few words about this situation? That yeah, I- exactly. Yes. Yes. Just okay. to kind of contextualize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Um, just a brief clarification that uh, this happened to me when I was already working on this book for like a year and a half, but I think it did help me bring more of that vulnerability to um, to the table. And what happened was that uh, I think it was 2017. I saw on social media a friend posting about a, a Dove body wash ad, <clears throat> and my friend was very upset about the ad because it, the ad seemed racist and I saw a, a 
uh, like a um, snapshot from that ad and it did look uh, strange and suspicious because there was a, a black woman uh, removing her sh- shirt and then underneath there was a, a redhead white woman and so I did some more research online and saw that a lot of people were talking about that a big media outlets were talking about that putting this um, those two images together and saying well hey what what uh, what they're trying to say here that if uh, a black woman uses your um, product, they will be like clean and become white because this is a horrible racist thing to say. And, and um, I, I, I did, I did do some research, right? So I didn't just react after reading my friend's uh, post on Facebook. Uh, but I didn't, as it turned out, Later, I didn't do enough research because I was very emotional about that right away, and I and I posted uh, my own um, um, a few lines on Facebook, um, saying that this horrible, and I opened it to everybody for everybody to see, you know, public post. And in a, uh, a very short period of time, I got a, a three comments from strangers. Strangers, and the first two were short, so I was ready to dismiss them. But the second one, the third one, was longer, and and it said like, "Hey, did you really like see the whole thing?" Because then the, after the red, the, the redhead also removes her shirt, and under that shirt, there is another woman who has slightly darker hair, uh, slightly darker skin and black hair, and looks kind of Hispanic actually. So I was actually terrified when I read this because I. I I was like, oh, my God, I messed up. Uh, and I started doing more research now, having this new angle in mind. And I did find out that the so what happened is that Dove was preparing and to go into launch a new um, campaign. And they took a snippet of this campaign that was those three women. But the campaign actually was supposed to have even more women of different uh, shades of skin and and, and hair in um, different racial, you know, ethnicities. Uh, uh, And um, so it just became so much more complicated all of a sudden once I made this additional step. And uh, and I started with the story because... um, uh, I feel like, uh, you know, when people, um, you know, me included, you know, when we, we go online, for example, and, and, and read what some other people are saying, and we often experience strong emotions and, and those emotions and prevent us from, <laughs> from uh, you know, trying to understand this situation in a broader context. And, and then, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I just I just thought it's a good good place to start to show how it's not just some other people it's you know really every each one of us has this but not everybody maybe recognizes that yes yes and I think that's a great and thank you for sharing that in detail because I think that's a great example because um of the complexities and the nuances of our relationship with media from multiple different levels whether it's professional or personal um because we often have we we see things out of context and, and I think this is where, you know, the left will get in trouble with things politically, because if it's being taken out of context and it's like, oh, it's, it's racist or it's this or it's that, but then we have to contextualize and say, well, wait a minute, this is actually an ad that was taken out of context. Yeah. And is it really, and is it not? So then obviously when you're talking about things about inclusivity and diversity and racism and, um, you know, and, and these kinds of things, it becomes so polarized and mm. so difficult 
to make yourself vulnerable in that space, even to say, well, actually, no, this was a, you know, perhaps the, the ad wasn't the best to begin with, but looking at the intent, looking at the impact. So I just think that, you know, that was a great starting point. I was like immediately hooked when I was reading it because one, I knew exactly what ad you're talking about. <laughs> um, and most when you do a when you do kind of a preliminary research, you really online, you really only see this transformation, you know, from one per like from the, you know, a black female to a white female, which is yeah. just horrifying. Mm-hmm. on the surface, right? Um, but then it's also so easy to like recontextualize things and 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 create them into another object. Mm-hmm. And and so I thought that was yeah, that's a kind of a great example. And then you, when you get into <clears throat> your first chapter, you start talking about what is media. Yeah. So how do you define media? Um so I um I guess the simplest way that I use uh, throughout the book to define media is uh, uh, media is people communicating with each other through technology. Um, so, so it's technology. Technology is a part of that, but it's it's a lot about people and how they use technology. And technology is also created by people, right? So. Um, yeah, so it's uh, and it's not just some other people. It's really all of us. And in this sense, I I want to broaden our perception of media from something that um, appeared just uh, like a hundred, a couple hundred years ago, maybe, to to something that existed with us all along because of the way human beings communicate. Um, and you know, we th- keep we think about technology as something fairly recent, but um, you know what uh, technology that was used to carve um, uh, hieroglyphs on pyramids was also technically media, right? Um, and even even beyond that, we can say that language is a, is a form of media because it's a tool that we learn that is not transparent, that uh, reflects our biases, right? Um, and that represents only allows us or for forces us, uh, depending on how you want to phrase it, to represent all of a fraction, like a frame of reality, our perception of reality. Um, so um, I feel like when we broaden our understanding of media this way, we can have a much more nuanced conversation about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, looking at communication looking at media and communication, they often go hand in hand, but perhaps we, we like to kind of isolate them when we're looking at media, as you mentioned, you know, talking to students or, or like defining the concept of media as it's not, well, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So is it like, is it the, is it a text? Is it a, is it an apparatus? Is it a, you know, a, the mass media machine, like the institution. So like, I think it's really a complexity of all of those and how we interact with those, which is why I really appreciate it when you talk about power. Um, so you talk about, uh, for example, the foundations of communication, you lay out um, several principles, which I think are, are helpful in terms of contextualizing communication and the importance of communication. And you really start by talking about how people need to communicate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and principle two, by communicating, people create the world around and within them. So kind of, you know, the the meaning making um, 
And communication happens according to the rules of human perception and cognition. Communication reflects and reinforces power relationships that exist in society, which I think for me is, it relates very specifically to my, to my academic research. Um, and then you talk about people influence each other through communication. Is there any of these principles that you, th- how do you think that they fit in with each other? Do you think that there's one that's more important or more obvious than another? Or or how do you contextualize these principles within that greater conversation of media? Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, reading uh, out the principles, because I do think it's, uh, you know, one of, I hope that this uh, is going to be one of the big takeaways for my readers. Um, um, yeah, it's difficult to prioritize. I think that uh, uh, each one of them is on the surface level um, might be uh, might seem almost like obvious, but uh, my my goal is to have people think deeper about what what exactly that means um uh, for example people like the number five people influence each other right um so if you everybody who studied sociology knows the concept of socialization right so we we live in society we grow up uh surrounded by other people and they influence how us, how we are, how we see the world. And then in response, we're also influencing other people. And I think this is um, an aspect that is sometimes uh, sort of gets lost when people start arguing about um, social issues and saying that, well, it's just like some other people who are doing stuff and deciding stuff. But I think for the focus for me is that we all influence each other and by, by just our everyday actions that seem perfectly, uh, you know, obvious and normal, like uh, choosing uh, where to live or what clothes to wear or how to decorate our house, we are communicating certain things to others. So communication for me is not just verbal communication, right? It's uh, obviously communication has so many aspects. So just living your life a certain way is already communicating something to the world. And, you know, if, if, if a bunch of people decides to live their life a, a similar way, then they're communicating to others that this is, their way and they think it's the right way and um etc etc so uh in 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 this sense um i my book is not trying to say that well uh somebody is worried about media's influence but you shouldn't Uh, i'm not i'm not saying that i'm saying that there there are a lot of problematic things going on but it's important to see it not as like somebody else is doing things to me or or somebody like bad is doing bad things to good people, right? But more like we all are in this process. We are all influencing each other by just by virtue of being human. So of course, media influences people because media is people and people influence each other. <laughs> so this is what I was trying to say here. So um, I don't know if you want me to explain any other of the of the principles, but again, it's not, I, I chose that one not because I feel it's the most important one, but just, I wanted to unpack it as an example. Yeah, no, please, um, please unpack the um, the other principles as well, and in, in their relationship to each other, and your ultimate um, argument about how media is us, right? That we're in, kind of intrinsically in this space together. 
Okay. Um, all right. So the first one is people need to communicate, uh, which basically means that. Uh, uh, I mean, it's connected to the the fifth principle if we're trying if we're talking about connections, because we grow up in society. We cannot be human. We cannot grow up human without communicating with other people, right? We we can think about examples of uh, children uh, who were raised by animals. They're very rare, right? But they that happen, and after a certain period of time, these children being with animals, they cannot be like fully members of society and you know i don't know if you can say like they're fully human in a way right so uh we only can be human um if we are surrounded by other people and communicating with them all the time again meaning not just through words but through body language and uh i'm I don't know if my uh, listeners are aware that about nine, up to ninety percent of our communication happens through nonverbal communication, right? So, uh, and the, there's visual communication as well. Um, so, so we need to to communicate to to be human in society. In, within society, people need to communicate in order for society to exist, uh, for people to set and achieve common goals. You know, civilizations as we know them are possible through communication because we can share knowledge, we can record and transmit knowledge to um, um, new, following generations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, but the fact that we need to communicate doesn't mean that we know how to communicate in a way that won't hurt ourselves and others. And the comparison can be a food, right? We need to eat. Right. But it doesn't mean that we know how to eat healthy. <laughs> right. In fact, like we want to eat fatty foods and we want to eat sweet foods because this is a survival mechanism embedded in our genes, like telling us this is this is good. <laughs> but 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 actually, it's it's not that good if we if, if we don't understand how it works. And the same thing with communication. The fact that we need to communicate doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if we are. Uh, that we cannot be, say, addicted to certain forms of communication to the point where we don't understand how they are harming us or that we don't know how to, or the, the fact that we need to communicate doesn't mean that we will not know how not to abuse our power uh, when we're communicating with others. Um, so this, and that's the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping between all those principles because really uh, the it's, you can you can look at at them in whatever order, <laughs> and there is no hierarchy here, right? So I mentioned power, so I may as well talk about the the fourth principle, which is about uh, communication, uh, reinforcing, creating and reinforcing power relationships in society, and and there um, I talk about. Uh, the fact that whenever people interact, there is some kind of power relationship with with in, within this uh, a, a relationship within this interaction, um, and uh, communication is a big part of that. So who, because through communication, say we can tell another person what to do, or, or we can signal to them what they are supposed to do or what we we think we are supposed to do and obviously power in 
connected to communication is a huge topic. In, uh, you know, the, all this, uh, the uh, analysis of media text, for example, or presentations uh, from a point of view, like who is benefiting from them and, um, um, you know who who can who can hurt whom, or who is allowed to speak? Who who is invisible and whose voices are prioritized? Uh, I think this is all super important. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important. It's also important to put it in this bigger context. At, again, connecting it to the fifth principle that because we influence each other, it's not as simple as there are kind of good bad guys and good guys or it or only sort of the the most visible or seemingly powerful actors in society are the ones who are influencing influencing each other i think it's it's more complicated because in 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 some subtle ways we we all influence each other in ways that are not necessarily obvious right and and uh and this is connected to the way we represent the world to each other um so and this is uh i guess the second principle that we create the world by communicating uh we create the world within ourselves and outside of ourselves right so by communicating we learn who we are about our identity right we see ourselves through others eyes uh, other people's eyes right uh so so in this sense it's essential this relationship with other people is essential for us to understand who we are but at the same time it's a lot about our interpretation and the spin we put on that um and uh, so we create the world uh for ourselves and for others and this is a big topic in uh media studies media literacy education uh, about um representation and the fact that media does not represent reality the way it is which is is a you know very com- complex statement that is like we can unpack <laughs> really for a long time like what is reality right and what does it mean to represent reality but the the bottom line is that uh it's important to to acknowledge that we all are representing uh, uh you know our version our understanding of the world to ourselves and to others, sort of. So, so it's it's essential to understand that when we turn on a news uh, channel, for example, right, that some there's somebody behind the story that we are watching who made decisions about, first of all, what to tell and then how to tell it, wh- whom to interview, and how long the story will be, and what pictures, what videos to attach to the story, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's essential. But it's also important to understand that it's not just the some other guys that behind, you know, the screen. It's us because when we say go in uh, to our friends and tell them how we saw the story or even when we tell them about something that happened to us, right, we, we're also representing our version of reality too. To uh, to them, so and I know it's 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 uh, it, it's a complicated sort of relationship, and it's tempting to say that well, all, like news channels are by definition more powerful than uh, people who watch them because they, they reach more people. But it's it's more complicated than that because then everybody also interprets it. From their own perspective, right? We we know that people interpret um, other people or media um, from 
using their backgrounds and and their uh, notions and assumptions. So uh, so just it's it's important to understand how complicated it is and then take responsibility for how for the way we uh, construct the world for ourselves and others. Right and uh, and uh, connected to that, that's the third principle about um, people um, communicating in a way that um, sort of re, uh, re, uh, represents their or and I'm looking for a different word like uh, the the their cognitive certain cognitive principles or principles of their perception that are. Uh, revealed through communication and that shape communication because we, we communicate according to the way our brains work, right? Well, uh, you know, co- like biases, cognitive biases that have become a big topic recently, like, you know, confirmation bias, everybody knows about that, right? So we we uh, filter information uh, in a way that fits what we already believe in or what we already know it doesn't mean that we never change our opinions but often more often than not we look for things that confirm what we believe in right which which then yeah shapes a lot how we um interpret things for ourselves and then for others and in influencing them again according to the fifth principle. So, um, yeah, I guess those are, um, I tried sort of to show the connections between those uh, principles. I do differently in the book. Um, um, but um, um, I, I don't know, do, do you have any questions based on my explanations? Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> I think they're great principles. I think they do, as I mentioned earlier, like really show the nuance in, in relation to what our relationship is with media and what medium is in, in meaning makings and things like that, because it is, it is complex. It is multifaceted. It's not just the, you know, the, the evil media, as you kind of, you mentioned that, for example, when you move into chapter two, we talk about imperfect meaning makers and you state, we don't have to be afraid of the evil media that can ruin our lives. We are what brings it into existence. So we should be able to control it. So of course, like just taking that, it makes it sound like we're automatically just taking the power out of media institutions, which is not, at all what you're doing. Yeah. Um, we do talk about that in the next chapter. So can you um, expand on, on what you do mean by imperfect meaning makers? And I think you, you briefly mentioned that uh, in, you know, in relationship to the principle, but what does that really mean? What does that mean for us as we create and consume uh, media and, and communicate and, and create meaning in that meaning in that? Uh, yeah. So, um, thank you for bringing it up. Cause yeah, that's a big piece of, uh, my, uh, argument is first of all, the human beings as meaning makers, right? So we, we might feel that, uh, mm, I think it's not uncommon to think that, uh, things by, de- by definition, like they are, they mean something or they like things are like, there's some kind of truth out there that we are looking for this is the 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 perfect ideal objective truth that we're looking for and then we are we are experiencing our world and we and we think oh you know are we getting closer to that truth like this is the the um 
our, I guess, approach in our in our heads, right? But we are forgetting that it's not just about looking for some objective truth. It's about creating interpretations of the world around us. So it's it's not just looking for some meanings that are out there waiting to be discovered. It's actually creating meanings in the process. And I love the uh, framework of symbolic interactionism that I uh, use um, in my book and, and uh, also the social construction of reality. Like, I, and, and to clarify, I don't, I don't think that everything is socially constructed, but I think that uh, human beings like do a lot of interpreting. <laughs> uh, and and we, do, we do occupy the same physical reality, but what differs is interpretation of this reality. Say there's one person that hits another person, like, the physical reality is the same for everybody. Like there are two bodies and one made the movement in space and hit the other, like, right. But why it happened, this is, can be radically different, the interpretation. Um, And so we are making meanings and our meanings depend on uh, the context that we live in as society, right? Again, people influence each other and, uh, and they are not, absolute not um by definition unchanging uh so in this sense we are meaning makers and imperfect imperfect because we are we have all those limitations uh placed on us but because of the way our brains work because of the way our um, um sensations work um, so it, it's not a like a bad thing, something to be ashamed of, but it's something just to recognize that uh, it makes us more careful, makes us more sort of re- receptive to other points of view. Because when we think, well, I created, the, you know, this is my meaning that uh, I can trace where it comes from and is dear to me. Like I, I don't want to say that it's 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 not true it's not important but i can also understand where it comes from and i can understand why somebody else can think differently and and the fact that somebody else is biased yeah it's true but i'm also biased and uh and so we can we we still can have a conversation with each other acknowledging each other's vulnerability yeah absolutely i think that's that's important i i you know, the, the vulnerability piece is really refreshing to see, uh, you know, it throughout your book. Um, and I also, when I talk to my students, I, 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 one of the approaches that I have is to really remember that we are human and to just humanize situation. Like you remember that, you know, celebrities, for example, they are human. And so even though you can have someone like Kim Kardashian as a media object, she's still a person and then as an audience, we don't really have access to the person, right? We have access just to the media personality. I think it, I think it is important because we, otherwise we, we can create meanings that are, um, that end up being toxic. And I think that's why we, we have some, we have a lot of toxicity, I think in, in, in online discussions, you know, when you think about like YouTube comments, you know, like just the anonymity and, and these are, we are creating meanings and we are perhaps drawing out stereotypes and things like that. So, um, so there are those, uh, when you kind of go into chapter three, where you talk about paradoxes of power. So, because I, there is power in, in the audience and in the, and those of us that are consuming the content, but, um, you know, when we think about, and, and you mentioned this, you know, just right off the bat in chapter three, like in a capitalist society, meaning making 
does become a profitable business. And it's, we can't ignore that, right? Because capitalism does thrive on that. So when we think about creating popular culture and we think about mass, you know, when we think about media conglomerates like Disney, they're incredibly powerful. Um, and if they create texts that perpetuate stereotypes, then all of a sudden that is perpetuating, creating meaning um, that can become very dangerous, right, to society. Um, so when you think about, you know, powerful people, how do you think, so describe more and talk a little bit more about these paradoxes of power that you discuss in chapter three. Uh, so uh, thank you for, for this question, because I do hope that this would be another important take uh, away from uh, this book for my readers is the might is about power. And I actually introduce a theory that I call theory of micro and macro power. And by introducing this theory, my goal was to, um, to, to, to show that we can at the, we can at the same time, um, want to keep people accountable. We can, uh, we can and should say, well, abuses of power happen and there are some some uh bad actors who who hurt others and uh, and uh and something needs to be done but at the same time we want to uh put it in a bigger context and understand why uh you know um sort of look at um some problematic things, problematic actions that happen in the world um, from the perspective of uh, how we can uh, fix that without just relying on blame, without just saying, well, there, you know, people who abuse their power, they can fix that. Because, so, so the theory of micro and macro power, uh, why I called it, it this way, because I talk about society as kind of, you can look at two very different planes of reality in society. Um, and so if you look at a, a relationship between specific individuals, say, just, just take a pair of individuals, any pair of individuals that have some interaction, there is always going to be some kind of power relationship between them. Uh, with, uh, and um, in, in, if you, if you put this in a context of time, if you look at this pair of individuals in the context of time, then a, a balanced relationship would be a relationship where uh, each person has a turn when they have more power than the other person, when they get to decide, like think of a, of a couple in marriage, right? So, so two different people, right? They, they won't agree on everything. But if just one person all the time dictates to the other person what they're supposed to do, like this is wrong, right? Or a parent and a child can be the, the same thing. So yes, a parent uh, is, is supposed to tell child a lot of times like what they're what they're supposed to do. But if if a parent never listens to the child and never does like what the child does, uh, what the child wants, and and then parents kind of says like okay whatever like I I will I will do it now for you because you really want it right then you know I I think this is a pro also problematic relationship. So, so this is this is still very simple because we're looking at just w relationship between two individuals. But 
and and I call it micro power. What's going on there, right? It's like this micro relationship. Uh, but once, but no, no pair of individuals exists in a vacuum. And once you start looking at other relationships, other individuals around it, because each each one of us is connected to so many people, and each of the people that we are connected with is connected to so many other people. So then, we, if we look at power relationships between those uh, other um, people and in and the couple that we started with, the pair of individuals, you know, it becomes so much more complicated because sometimes, say, a parent tells a child what to do and forces a child to do something because the parent feels that they have to do that because in society, like, this is a norm, right? Or in their community, this is a norm, right? And, um, and the more we zoom out of the specific pair, the more complicated things become to the point that it just becomes like mind boggling. And then to the, I'm talking, it's sort of like a mind, like brain experiment, mind experiment that you, you imagine a whole society. You can, our brain cannot really do that. But if you, if you, if we could imagine the whole society with all the relationships between all the individuals, it would be incredibly difficult to say like who has power over whom. So even say the most powerful people who, you know, we feel like they influence tons of people, right? They also grew up in a certain context. Like they, the values that they have, they they learned from people around them. So people around them influence them, right? And the, and the things that they're doing, right, it's based on perceptions on, 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 on certain principles that they themselves didn't necessarily come up with, right? And, and uh, so... Uh, again, it's it's very difficult to. <laughs> I it really I spend so much time trying to formulate this. this I bet I explain it better in in the book <laughs> than than I did right now. And I'm I'm honestly just you know continuing the theme of vulnerability. I am. I'm, I'm, I am concerned and I'm scared about how people might interpret this because I feel like they will, people will be angry at me and say like I'm excusing some bad actions right and i'm just i'm i'm just ignoring that some people have access to so many other people that they can influence right and and actually like uh you uh i know that you want to ask me at some point about my future projects that's one of my future projects that i really feel like i you know i dedicated just one chapter in this book to the the idea of power like i wrote right want to write more about that and explain it better uh but yeah my concern is that people will say like i'm just saying that uh you know kind of like you you brought disney as an example i will say well well, Disney is like is they don't have power and they this then it doesn't matter like what they do. It's most important thing is like what people who watch Disney do. And that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that everybody pl- is playing this game, right? In, in different ways. And it's also uh it's again this idea that runs through the book that we need to be more self-aware and and take more responsibility for what we do and not just expect that somebody else will come and fix stuff because it's somebody else's fault. Right. Yeah, no, I think, you know, uh, related to this in in a perspective in in terms of looking at, for example, uh, continue picking on Disney is when I, you know, and I tell my students, uh, well, what would happen if all of a sudden, you know, one day people just boycotted 
Disneyland and decided not to go to the theme parks or decided not to go, you know, and watch a movie or something like that, would Disney as a corporation all of a sudden listen? They would, right? So it's like this idea that that people don't have power. We do. That power may have to be in mass, right? Versus like the power that Disney itself as a corporation has. So so I, I, I cannot appreciate the, the micro macro that you bring in. I think I, I discuss it a little bit differently in, in, in my classroom, but I think that these, the, the, it is important to look at this. Um, it's not always just a top down because Disney would absolutely listen if, if there's, you know, if there's a backlash, because that means that you, we have to be able to hold corporations accountable um, you know, for, especially when they do have that much power. Right. So I think that there is um, those elements in terms of, of looking at the complexity and, and the complex relationship we have with media and media companies and media texts. Um, and I think, you know, you move in and, and start talking about, for example, that you state that blame is not the answer. So you, you mentioned that in chapter four. So why is blame not the answer? Um, well, so I, I, um, I, n- I know that some people will not <laughs> agree with me on that, right? And um, I think, again, it's a matter of trying to phrase it very carefully. So I don't think that we should, if something is wrong, like I, uh, if we feel that something is wrong, with, if, we, if we're not happy about something, say how we are treated or, or some group of people is treated, uh, you know, we should say that. We should talk about that honestly and openly. But there's a difference between blame that is sort of like this easy act of finding uh, the guilty party and kind of isolating them and uh, uh, versus um, sort of trying to understand the the complexity of it and the complexity that I... uh, try to explain in the chapter about power for example right so so we we absolutely uh should um share what we are unhappy about but learn to do it in a way that yeah that incorporates this this more nuanced outlook okay and when we think about so you talk about you know this concept of blame and then then you kind of go into talking about awareness, right? So, so you you wrap up the book talking about ACE it, and the the concept or the rationale is is behind ACE uh, is awareness to collaboration through empathy. So then this is really focusing on kind of wrapping everything together with this notion of of empathy, which is something that I think many of us strive for, and you even mentioned that it's difficult to get to that point and we often fail at being empathetic and perhaps there's some um, disconnect in terms of how we deal with empathy and how we can be empathetic while still owning perhaps some, some negative emotions that are related to whatever, right. Whatever the cause is or whatever we're trying to be empathetic towards. So can you expand and talk more about the ACE concept and what this all really means um, in relationship not only to the book, but really, again, to that greater conversation about media. Yeah, so that's the last chapter that I call ACID. It's like a play on words because the mo- I talk about this model, the practical model, uh, 
ACE, A-C-E, which, as you said, uh, means from awareness to collaboration uh, through empathy, right? So, so again, aware, the awareness piece is essential because we do want to see the imperfections of society. We do want to acknowledge that uh Bad things happen and some people suffer and there are inequalities, right? But we do not want that awareness to prevent, to create so much, you know, anger and and blame uh, that cr- creates divisiveness, right? We don't we don't want that because then we cannot call we cannot come together as society and 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 think of more um um, constructive solutions together. So an empathy piece is, is essential there. And I think that uh, empathy is is a concept that is often misunderstood because people think of empathy as just sort of kindness, right? So people think, well, why would I be empathetic to um, a person that like whose actions I think are horrible, right? Because I don't want to like them. I don't want to, um, you know, uh, I, I don't want to be kind to them. Uh, or I don't want to excuse them. That's nothing because people think being empathetic uh, meaning excusing somebody. Well, so no, that's not it. Being empathetic, uh, well, it's, you know, you need to understand that empathy has a emotional and cognitive aspects. And, um, and I, I think it might be a, a revelation for people to know that psychopaths, for example, have empathy. <laughs> because the empathy is not uh you know seeing a kitty and 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 seeing how cute empathy is, is under a part a part of it like this a cognitive part is understanding uh another person's actions from their perspective perspective it's a lot about perspective taking so um in this sense, empathy really is not about excusing somebody's actions. Uh, you can still be very angry and upset about somebody's actions, but you can you can take make this effort to understand them in a broader context and i i know there are common explanations when we don't like somebody's actions as like they're mean or they're stupid it's just two big common explanations right but and i really don't like them because because i think they they hide so much complexity and nobody's just mean and just stupid this these words are very intransparent there are always some things behind people's actions that when we dislike those actions we can find those things out and actually when we find those things out that makes us better at fixing things that we think are wrong and in some cases it, it can allow us to to not in all cases i'm saying not in all cases but in some cases we can actually find ways to interact with that other person that whose actions we dislike and find some common ground and actually do some things together um so yeah, so my uh, I I know this this book starts like a media studies you know kind of book, right? But it really expands to those broad topics, and and by the end you see that I'm actually writing a lot about, uh, referring a lot about the current situation in, in the United States with uh, po- growing polarization, and I just hope that uh, having this more nuanced understanding of of media will lead to more nuanced understanding of ourselves and then as a result to hopefully can contribute to diminishing this divisiveness. 
yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, um, I think the concept, yeah, of empathy is, is, you know, certainly important. I think there's definitely, uh, I think of those who would argue that, you know, psychopaths would lack empathy in terms of truly wanting to empathize with another human being. But I think that there's something related to perspectives and you can acknowledge someone else's perspective, but it doesn't mean that you are going to empathize with it. Right. So I think, I think that's one of the, um, the issues of that make, you know, our awareness or our media literacy that much more complex, because I think it depends also on the context and you kind of go in and talk about, um, like you kind of give a guide in terms of, um, you know, talking about uh, media literacy from Renee Hobbs and like the media literacy, uh, smartphone exercise, and you've changed it and kind of bring in really to, to kind of contextualize and I think bring awareness, right? So who created this, what techniques are used, um, to attract and hold attention, what values, assumptions, lifestyles, and points of views are embedded, how many different people interpret or use this differently, what is hidden or omitted. Um, so I think doing that analytical breakdown, um, can be very powerful. I think this is something that, you know, can easily be adapted into a, and should be adapted obviously into a classroom exercise, uh, and was that your intent for this to be something that can be practical for for anyone to use? Oh yeah, absolutely. I do hope. I know that most of the book is is theoretical, but I I added this last last chapter to tie it all together and to show that there's something some practical implications to all of that. And yes, uh, I, I I talk about so awareness and I talk about empathy and different ways to actually practice that uh, and I offer specific tools to do that which is just an example there are other things one can do but uh, these are examples and yeah so I, I definitely hope that uh, people will use that but it's also another thing that uh, I, I want to work on uh, another thing that I want, another book that I want to write, where the practical part will be uh, m- uh, more important than theoretical part, and people can get more tips on things that they can do. Great, yeah, I, I think your book is excellent. I really enjoyed reading. It was refreshing to read something that was, you know, that kind of has that personal perspective, but still um, valuable ac- academically. And I think that you know that last, the, the, the practical component really wraps things up very nicely. So I definitely appreciate Thank that. You. Um, so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but as we wrap up, is there anything that you're currently working on? Like what's next for you from, from this book? Uh, yeah, I have a few projects, um, in, on different stages of, uh, um, um, different stages. I am, I am working on a book, uh, about polarization that will be more practical. Uh, and essentially I too, I, I want to take the ACE model and I want to unpack it and turn it into specific exercises. I, I call it ACE fitness club oh, <laughs> that, <right>. people, <laughs> that people can actually use in their everyday lives. Cause I feel like that's there. There are a lot of books about polarization, but often they, they have sort of some general solutions that people might not know how to apply that to their everyday life. So that's, so that's one thing. And I, I am, uh, I didn't start it yet, but I want to uh, work on a book about power where I explain that in much more detail than I did in that one chapter. So yeah, I, and there, there's other stuff, but yet, um, 
less fleshed out. <laughs> yeah, <those are> big <laughs> yeah. no, that's great. I, I, I keep me posted on that, and then we'll, we'll <laughs> I'll, I'll have you back on. And you can talk about the, thank you. The, the Ace Fitness Club, which is great. <laughs> um, so, thank you again for joining us, Elisabetta, and and thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in. Um, until next time, cheers. Thank you. Bye.